Take your seats, family. Take your seats, family. Take your seats. Thank you so much. I'm also thrilled to say that one of my, uh, I've been discipling people prophetically for a while, and one of the most interesting little ladies that I've been discipling or had influenced and I would regard as a spiritual child, it's a little lady from, actually originally from Michigan, most interesting lady, most unusual. Some years ago, she got the Holy Ghost, and when she got the Holy Ghost, she got an English accent with it. It's so strange. <laughs> anyway, she um, uh, did several careers, and when I first met her, I think she was a warden in a prison. Now she's a sheriff in, in uh, Nashville, and uh, she's such an amazing woman. She adopted three children that are all family members that have been going through a crisis, creating a stable environment for those children. I watch those children as she raises them, how safe they feel. And she happens to be here tonight with some uh, Maricel with her cousins and all kids are here too. So I just wanted to honor her. She drove all the way from Nashville tonight to be here. Most unusual little lady, but the girl can prophesy too. But you've got, I, I sense you've got a lot of prophetic people in this church anyway that we need to awaken and let flow spiritually. I was a pastor for so many years, and God called me to the, to the prophetic ministry. It was very traumatic for me. Uh, my, my natural nature is very humoristic, and I do, I've had people rebuke me and pray for me. In fact, in a pastor's conference, I had some pastors, older pastor wives, gang up on me and tell me I had a spirit of frivolousness. And so they prayed it off me. I was very young, so I let them pray it off me, and they just kept praying and yelling at the devil, so they wouldn't go away, so I coughed, and then it made them happy, and they... <clears throat> it's true, I'm telling you the truth. And they left me, and when they left me, it came back seven times stronger. <laughs> but I, I was the last person that I would ever have thought about prophetic ministry. For me, I had a wife and two children at the time. I have three now, but at the time when God asked me to, when the Lord really spoke to me and said to me, it was a traumatic experience. I'm not an out-of-body person or an angel visits. I'm not any of that mystic. I'm not that kind of person. And I was pinned to my bed in the middle of the night, and this light went on. I thought, how the light so bright in here? And the Lord was speaking for hours to me about starting a prophetic ministry in Southern Africa. There was no such thing, and to raise up prophets. And I said, you got the wrong person. I'm, do I look like a prophet to you? I'm always making jokes. And, and then, first of all, I don't even know what that is. How am I going to train someone? And then he went to said, yeah, I want you to move out. I was a, one of the pastors of a church in, the, in Africa, and I said, um, he wants me to live by faith. I said, well, they got me there. I've got a wife and children. If I was unmarried, I said I would do this for you. But, you know, it's such a mega risk and so strange that it, you've got to find someone else that's not married. I'm just, I, I have responsibility. And on the way to church some months later, on a Monday morning with my wife and at that, that time, uh, a two-year-old who's now 42-year-old, 43-year-old, she works for me many years now in the ministry. We crossed the railway track near the church and the vehicle died on the track and there was nothing I could do to move it. Nothing. The I tried, I pushed, I did everything I needed to do and it was just, I couldn't. And the train came and hit the vehicle and we'd left the vehicle in time and the, and the train eventually did stop and the, this voice said to me, you're so responsible, you almost killed your family. Give them to me and I'll take better care of them and go do what I've told you. Well, you know, when you have a Jonah experience like that, Jonah changed his mind too in a hurry. And uh, so I changed my mind instantly from that moment to this 40 odd years later. I'm still doing 
what he wants. I average about 28 church meetings a month. And then I still travel. I just got back on Thursday from South Africa. And, I, and I go, I, I, people often say to me, I go to Argentina and to Czech Republic, countries that just can't afford, cost me money to go there. But I'm so driven for my passion and love for the Lord. And I'm specifically called to raise up prophets. I'm not called to be the prophet. And that's where my gift and talent lies. In the last six months, he's made it, or he, last year, he, he asked me to complete my cycle and set in, in motion that the, the next generation will come. So I've built a prophetic school called Prophets Academy. It's online. And the, the basis of the academy is it's a family for prophets that are screened. They can't just join. And when they're screened and they're healthy and they're in a local church, and so I'm very local church orientated. I can't believe you can be healthy unless you're in one. And then that's honestly true. I'm only there about your health. And so if they're screened and they are reasonable, they'll join the family and they have access to all our material as well as we have a whole host of coaches that I've been training for some years that are mature and that will help individually disciple these prophetic people. Because in the church of God, we have five-fold ministry. We have apostles and prophets and teachers and pastors. Everybody welcomes the teacher, the pastor, even the evangelist. And now we celebrate anybody with the word apostle. But the prophet is mostly misunderstood and misrepresented. In this country, we've had some idiots that call themselves prophets that are on, on the internet and they, they get a platform and access and they say the stupidest things. And most of them, most of them don't have a church they go to. They are, live in California and their pastors in New York. And that doesn't work for me. They have to be in a local church functioning, tithing. Their whole family would be part of that, that church. I am 70 and I'm still, I'm still part of a church. I still have a pastor and I'm still accountable. I still tithe. All of that. I'm not, I'm not a law to myself. I live, I live what I preach. I'm telling you this is because I have, he told me the next two years I must go full speed and raise up prophets. And I'm just noticing in this church, you've got quite a few of them. We've had a few come to our encounters. We do encounters, and what they are is a very small capped group where I pour into discipleship into people that are prophetic. And, and everybody who knows me, after, it's so amusing, I've known me a long time. When they come to an encounter, they say, you're not like this in a church. No, because I'm working with a multitude of people. In, the, in a small group, I have mature people. I've got people that are called to ministry. You don't have to be a prophet to come to our encounters, but be called, have a heart for God's kingdom. And I will take you and evaluate where you are and push you as hard as I can to become as effective. Because I've only one thing in mind to advance the kingdom. And I have a tremendous passion and urgency on me now to complete my task and get the prophets. I'm not looking for large groups, but quality. Quality people, prophetic and such like. And uh, the prophetic ministry is the most misunderstood and most, uh, really most hated. In fact, it's the only one we're told in Thessalonians not to despise. Why would anybody despise prophecy? The devil hates prophecy. And I'm grateful for the so many healings and miracles and supernatural. But the truth be told, if you receive a miracle in your life, when you die, you've had your miracle. And you enjoyed it. We celebrate it. But when you die, that's the end of the miracle. And all the other gifts is the same way. They're here and now. The only gift, the only supernatural thing is Jesus said that the earth, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word, his word will will never pass. Grass with his flower fades, but his word. And so the devil knows that the power of the we made in God's image and God is a talking God. He said, let there be light. 
Can these bones live? I don't know. Speak to them. Speak to the mountain. You can't think in tongues. It has to be an audio. There has to be an actual speaking. We're made in his image. And prophecy has to be functioning in the church. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us to desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you prophesy. Every born-again believer should be flowing in the prophetic gift to encourage people and have a lot of understanding how the gift actually works. We're not led by prophecy. We're led by the Holy Ghost. It's very important you understand that. And so my heart and vision is to raise up prophets, and, and it's been an uphill journey for many, many years. It's not been a fun journey for me at all. Uh, it's the most uh, persecuted, most hated, most, you know, you can come into a church and pray for the sick. A hundred people stand in front of you. Only one person gets healed and everybody rejoices. When you prophesy of a hundred people, 99 get a fantastic word and one says, no, I don't think that's right. Then everybody remembers that word. No one else remembers the 99 that you spoke that was so accurate. It's very true. The, the prophetic is so, in fact, they slapped Jesus and said, prophesy who slapped you. The devil really hates the prophetic word. He's always trying to discredit it. Discredit. Well, it is written. You should do this. He'll try and use the word against you. He'll try and confuse the word because the word is so powerful. He hates it. Prophecy is more than God predicting something. There's a creative power in the word of God. God calls things that are not. And he creates things in people's lives and heart and gives you something to fight with. You have the word of the Lord, which is a two-edged sword to fight battles with. And they're very, the word of God is so powerful when it's a prophetic word and it's really God's word, it can bring life and healing to your bones. There's nothing like it. I'm reading today from the book of Acts chapter 9 about Saul's conversion. Saul was a very interesting man. I have so many questions for him personally when I see him. I'm grateful for his writings because 80% of our doctrines in the church come from him personally. Uh, and I just know that there's lots of books lost that other disciples wrote that would have helped us so much. Uh, God never wanted us to have a manual because we would split the hairs and fight over petty things, which we do now anyway, and not to stay to the real message and the heart of God in it. We try to split and argue and debate just like any Pharisee would. And that's not the way of the Lord at all. And so uh, Paul was a very educated man. He came from a, a city just northwest of, of Israel, and it was called Tarsus. And he was raised in a very Jewish family in a Roman community, which gave him... When you talk about Roman cities and Roman places, you must think of the first fresh, new, democratic society. They introduced democracy. They had a, a word they would herald. Uh, they would go through the city shouting, come here, come here, the good news, the good news. That's where Jesus would say, and he preaches good news to the poor because that's what the Romans did. They preached good news, which means you're free. Even the slaves were going to be set free. After a period of serving, they had to be released. And so you became a freedom, you became a citizen of Rome. You had your rights like we do in America. They were the first democratic society. They were just cruel and rough. That's the way they did things in those days. They, the crucifix didn't come from the Romans. It came from the Turks. They adopted that whole impaling and they developed it more and more into the place where Christ was crucified the way he was. And there were many forms of crucifixion to dominate and to enforce their power. It was really quite a powerful thing, the whole Roman Empire, very big and very powerful in the time of Jesus and so necessary to fulfill the plans of God. But Paul himself, or Saul, was born in Tarsus, but he came to Jerusalem in the time of Jesus, didn't meet him. He came in the time and he studied under a man called Gal Maliel. 
And Gamiel was, uh, was in Acts 5, you read about him, he was, a, he was the most respected rabbi. You know, rabbis come in, come in different seasons where they are very influential in Israel. You'll have a, a rabbi rise up with such anointing and such wisdom that he's just admired and, and almost adored in so many ways. A couple of years ago, one of the rabbis died in, in Tel Aviv, and it was the whole country came to a halt in his funeral. Just such an amazing man, the old man, and very wise. Now, we have traditions in the Israeli faith, which unfortunately is not the healthy thing. You hear Jesus says, you forsake the law for your traditions. Remember that? Well, the traditions of the Jews come from a thing called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection, a written collection of all these traditions handed down to us from the different rabbis over the years. It takes many years to develop it the way it is, and it's handed down and becomes a reality for the Jews. That's what we live by. For example, should you go to Israel today, you will not get any dairy product at nighttime with red meat. It just will not happen. In the mornings, you won't get any red meat or, or any kind of flesh. Only have, only, you'll only have seafood, which is fish and bread and dairy products, but you will not, have, they'll not be mixed. And the reason is that many years ago, some rabbi came up with a scripture, which it is in the word of God, that says it's cruel to boil a calf in its mother's milk. And from that came this tradition that we do not eat dairy and the, and the same meal as red meat. It's just, that's where it came from. And so we, they have created these rules, and Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew 15, you break the law. For your tradition. So they question about washing hands. And he says, the law says you ought to honor your mother and father. But what you say is what I could have given to my father and mother, I gave to the church. It's your tradition. And you forsake the laws of God by not honoring your parents. That's Matthew 15, and I'm not making it up. It's in the word of God. Read it for yourself. So, so <laughs> we have these traditions handed down to us. And Galmiel was a very wise remarkable rabbi. In fact, what's notable about him in Acts 5 is the Christians were being warned by the Sanhedrin, you're not to preach. And so Galmiel says, let's send them out, please. It's just, man, he says, brothers, listen to me. And he tells them in Acts 5, he says, you remember this other revival thing that came? It fizzled out. Now, if this is God, you're fighting God. If it's not God, it's not going to last. That's what he said. He fought for them. He was a wise old man, Gamiel, and Paul studied under him. He says so. He tells in one of his epistles, he studied under Gamiel. He was very educated and very, very devoted. That's why he had a reputation in Jerusalem when he came to fight the Christianity with this new sect, what is known as the Nazarene sect, it was called. And this is a whole new thing where they were fighting hard to preserve the Israeli faith, very much so. Even today, there's a constant tension, even in Israel, through, from, the, from the Orthodox to the regular Jews. In fact, when they talk about sinners, they're not talking about people that are living in terrible sin. It's people that are not adhering to the law. They don't, even, they don't wash their hands correctly. They don't do the five-day, five-times-a-day prayer. They don't do all the kissing the, uh, the Scripture on the way out of the door. They don't, all those things, they don't tie the Scripture on their hands and say, recite. You know, you talk. I see you guys love the talit, which is the, the prayer cloth they wear. My brethren wear talits, and they have no idea that that thing has 664 strands and, and knots, and they are all, one for each one for a law, and you're supposed to recite them. 600, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not bound to the law anymore. I really am. 
<coughs> it's much tougher than you think it is, much tougher. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up amongst, in a Jewish community, and, and my, I, we weren't Orthodox, so I'd go to my friend to go to the movies on a, on a Shabbat. What a stupid thing to do. It's Friday, Shabbat, and uh, they, I used the wrong plate at the dinner with them, and that was such a commotion in that house. They had to get the rabbi in to cleanse it, and my Lord, everything else that was so strange, and it put such a panic in me to, for the law, and just, everything was so scary with the people that are very Orthodox. Why am I telling you all this is that Paul was a fascinating man, very highly educated and devoted. And he's literally, from the, from the bottom of his heart and sincerity, persecuting this sect called Nazareth, followed Jesus with all of his heart. He's doing it for the right reason in his own heart, but he's fighting God. And, on the, and leaving Jerusalem, going to Damascus, which is actually outside, but it was still so many Jews were living there in so many synagogues that he went there to go find the, the Jews that had gone off the rails. And on the way there, he has a melodramatic encounter, a blinding light and a voice booming says to him, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? He said, I am Jesus, who you persecute. He has a face-to-face encounter. And he's blinded, and uh, there were men around him that heard a sound. Now, if it was an audible voice, they would have heard the same words that, you, that Paul heard. But because it was so, it was actually God does, God does not downgrade to your natural senses. You yourself have much more superior senses in your spirit man. You have spiritual eyes and ears and senses. Your natural senses are very downgraded. They're very pathetic compared to what you have because you have little bones and little membrane that vibrates. It's your brain that takes those signals and makes things of it. It's the same with your eyes. It's just little tiny minute dots of light and your brain takes the information and makes information from it in depth. That's why you have two eyes. It's, in, it's your brain that does all the work. Even a computer today doesn't match your brain. It's the speed of your brain. It's, in, it's just beyond all understanding. The brain is so amazing. It's, and you're not even using all of it. So God has made this brain so fantastic. Only God could do that. Now, when God speaks, because he's spirit and you are spirit, you have the same impulses, the same Stimulus. It stimulates your brain just like your natural senses would. But you have to be seasoned. And Hebrews 5 verse 14 says, by constant use, you train your spiritual senses by doing it constantly. And so if you're not doing it constantly, you need a whole dose of powerful anointing to activate your senses. And that's what happened with, with Saul. He had so much a lot of anointing because he was so far from God that it blinded his natural eyes. It was such an over, overload of impulses, it blinded him, and he heard the voice and he communicated, but the men next to him, they only heard a sound. They didn't hear words, they heard a lot of noise, and they didn't understand it. And the reason is that the anointing was so strong on Saul that it spilled over onto them, just enough for them to hear a sound, but not the actual words. Do you understand what I'm saying? So Saul has this melodramatic meeting with Jesus, and we pick up the story in... um, In Acts chapter 9, you're all excited, I know. You don't mind me teaching. I hope you don't mind. I'm a teacher. It's very natural for me to do this. Um, And so as we start in verse uh, 8, yeah, Saul's conversion. It's actually verse 10. I'm going to start in Damascus. In Damascus, there was a disciple. His name was Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. I could expound on why he's calling in a vision, not just just calling to him. It's a little more complicated. Ananias, and he recognizes it. 
But the fact he says, yes, Lord, he's acknowledging, I recognize who's talking to me. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul for he is praying. In a vision, this Saul has seen a man named Ananias, that's you, come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Like any good Christian, he argues with God. It's the funniest thing that we love God, we adore him, we're in prayer, and we can do anything he wants until he asks something we don't want to do. It was the strangest experience for me many, many years ago. For the first time I spoke in Israel, I'd flown from Johannesburg to where I lived to Tel Aviv. On the way there, I'm trying to debate because this is a conference about David. He's celebrating him 3,000 years as king. And I asked the Lord, what did you like about that man? I would have to go 3,000 years later to go and celebrate this man. What did was actually the big thing with him? Because I look at his life. You know, David, King David, he was a throwback. He was an first, eighth child, James, wherever you are. He's an eighth child. This, this, just saying. He was an eighth child, and there's no record of his mother. The fact that his father, Jesse, would not even consider him Although the other seven were all possible candidates, they wouldn't even consider him as king. So in Jesse's mind, he's disqualified, and the only thing would disqualify him is the fact that his mother is not a Jew. So somehow, or she became a Jew, or she not took whatever the reason might have been, but God had picked him. He's red-headed, red complexion. He didn't look like the rest of the Jews. And his brothers couldn't stand him. Young as he was, he was the youngest. But God chose him, and he had all kinds of struggles. He was a terrible father. He had that idiot Absalom. He grieved over that boy dying or being decapitated, and he was, all Absalom wanted to do was to throw his dad out of, the, out of Jerusalem and take over the whole thing. And uh, so the captain of these armies said to, to, to David, if you don't stop this mourning and grieving, we're all going to leave you. We've had enough of, your, of this none, and then he came to his senses. He was a terrible father, but he had a problem with women. He had so many wives and so many concubines, which he was entitled to as king, but he had to have another man's wife. And it wasn't a moment of weakness. He, the Bible said he was in the palace and he looked at her bathing. And I'm going to ask her one day, why the hell were you outside in that bathtub? Y'all, what did your mother tell you? Did she tell you to go outside? I'm sorry, did I, did I embarrass you now? I like to make the story real to you because you guys have sweet Lord Jesus stories in your head. He looked out and the Bible said he sent one of his servants and inquired. He inquired. He didn't just look inquired. Who's that girl? She's uh, Bathsheba married to Uriah, married. And then he sent for her. I said, she's married. What? You don't, you think I'm going to do so? You don't trust me? <laughs> you know, my children used to ask me, don't you trust me? I said, no. <laughs> I don't even trust me. true. <laughs> so he sends for her, and of course, he makes her pregnant, and he goes on with his life and thinks everything's cool. Nathan, now who replaces the previous prophet, comes to him and tells him a elegy, which is, which is about him, and David sees the wrong and right because of it, and he wants to deal with it, and so he says, you that man. And the offense to God, he doesn't even mention Adultery. He mentions, you killed Uriah by the hand of the Philistine. That offended God, the shedding of innocent blood. It made God angry. And there was a penalty for him because he was high profile. 
And yet the funniest thing is, that's always puzzled me, with, with all the wives he had and the f- first wives and all the wonderful other children he had already growing, that God would b- turn this relationship around and bring the blessing of the lineage of Christ from this relationship. Yeah. You can see David's first child dies, he fasts and wants to stop the Lord's hand, see if he can turn God's heart. And then when a child dies, he gets washed and dressed and eats and goes to comfort her. And the first child was born from lust and sin. The second child was conceived out of his kindness and love towards her. And there came Solomon. Big difference. Just thought you might like to know these things um, from a different point of view. So this David had something that God seemed to like right to the very end. And then I, then the Lord actually said to me, read this scripture. And I looked and I didn't even know it was there. In Acts 13, 22, it says, after removing Saul as king, God made David king son of Jesse, testifying, I found David, a man after my own heart, because he will do everything I ask him to. That single attribute got him such a favor with the almighty God. And I thought, when, he, when I read that, I said, but God, I do everything you ask. And the Lord laughed at me. He said, Ed, you don't even listen to half the things I say, let alone do them. <laughs> so I set out in my life many years ago to prove God wrong. And it's been a tough journey. So when I talk here, and I saying, Lord, I've heard so much about him. I'm like, who do you think's talking to you? you? Does he think God doesn't know? You're trying to tell God like he didn't know this man's causing trouble? I mean, it's the strangest thing, like Jonah. I mean, so I am not going to, to, to Nineveh. What do you think's going to happen? And, uh, Jonah, you think God's going to be okay with that? If God wants to deal with, and, uh, with different cities and bring judgment that you've been prophesying, how come God's going to be okay with you going a different direction? You think that's okay? And when you don't obey God, that whole ship he was on, innocent people that had nothing to do with his problem were all suffering. All their lives were in danger because he wasn't where he was supposed to be. If you're a pastor or a leader and you've got someone in your church, no matter how great they are, if they're not supposed to be there anymore, don't hold on to them because they'll rock your boat. You must let them go. Because when someone's not where they're supposed to be and you're entertaining it, you're in danger. Let, let, them, let God be God. And so David was a man after God's own heart and uh, he... He obeyed the Lord. He did everything God said. And you've got to practice at doing what God said. And Ananias is first debating, even though he loves God, this what God's asking now is a little freaky. But I was very blessed when I was to study this, this, this section of how he eventually responded. And he goes to Saul of Tarsus, and, uh, he, and, and God says to him, but the Lord said to him in verse 15, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles. He's not even saved yet, and he's already chosen to go to Gentiles. Because before the Gentiles and their kings and before, interesting enough that Peter, who wasn't very smart, he's a fisherman, uneducated, went to the Jews. And Paul, who had all education about Jews, went to the Gentiles. God doesn't need your education, he needs your obedience. He's looking for willing servants. Not, you know, if you know so much and you learn so much, you're useless. Because you think you're, you think you're so cool. So when you're nothing and nobody, God can use you. Nah, you didn't get that one. Okay. <laughs> but the Lord said, I will, he'll carry my name, Gentiles. And, and then verse 16 says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That's a wonderful introduction to ministry. 
And it may have been the motivation for the nice. How much is going to suffer? He's going to suffer? Okay, I can, I can prophesy. I can deliver that. <laughs> then Ananias went to the house and entered it. This is what I love so much. He placing his hands on Saul, he said, he said, brother Saul, we can't even see one another in this city of Lexington in different churches as brethren. If they don't do it the way we do it and believe what we believe, if they've got some strange different doctrine to us, even they might believe something, we don't see them as brethren or family. He goes there in obedience to God and he puts his hand and says, brother Saul. Can you imagine a blind man who's Jew is out to kill the Christians, someone calling him brother. How traumatic that must be. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Now you know when you've got a word of knowledge like that, that gets his attention and faith rises in him. Uh, on the road as you were coming here, sent me that you may see again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy, he hasn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to stop Christianity and now he's gonna, he hasn't even heard of the Holy Ghost. And that's what the Jews, why I know that you, we, you're not taught these things, you don't recognize the whole thing. That's why I love people to go to Israel. You get things in perspective of how it was in that day. The Jews didn't see the Gentiles as possible Christians and the whole battle that, can they be part of us? And they said, see, we, we went here and they got the Holy Ghost just like we did, showing God's approval on them. So they were trying to navigate their way through the whole thing of Gentiles getting saved. But it was always God's plan for the Gentiles to be saved. That was the whole purpose of Israel in the first place. God had to have a nation to bring a savior. And the nation had to be birthed. So they had to go to Egypt first and first accumulating 400 years of, of hardship of being slaves to become united and under God, desperate and get birthed as a nation going through a desert and then possessing the land, getting stronger and a history of difficulty. And God keeps saving them that they got to know God. And then when the Savior came, we had to first send a voice crying in the wilderness and go ahead of them to send out a trumpet of a, a signal. Uh, guys, wake up to God. You're getting too cold and backslidden. You need to get back with your heart with God. So when God sends you the Savior that Isaiah says in, in 42 different scriptures, you'll recognize it. Then there's 42 different prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus, including that he was born of a virgin, that he did miracles, all those, and they just didn't see it. The eyes, there was a veil in front of Jesus says, a veil before the eyes. And because they just couldn't see it, they were so hardened of heart, they would stone him. And he says, which of the miracles are you going to stone me? And one of the prophecies is for that Savior, he would be doing a lot of miracles and they want to stone him. Well, we're not stoning you for the miracle. We're stoning you for what you're saying. They were so stuck in their religion, they could not move. They're so stuck. They were suffocating in religion. They didn't, they couldn't. The miracles were just unimportant. They were clinging to what they wanted to believe. Awful. It's an awful thing, the spirit of religion. You have nothing to worry about the world or the devil. Jesus overcame both. Your biggest enemy is religion. In your own life and people around you. Religion. We keep going back to religion because we cannot control this relationship. This relationship is based on faith. I have to believe God that is what he says he is, but I have no way of measuring, am I a good Christian? So what I gotta do, I can pray this much, I can read the Bible, then I'm, and I, don't, I don't, don't do this and I don't do that, then I'm a good Christian. And so Jesus took that and he messed it up. People wanna get all legalistic. And I said why they didn't give us all those scriptures about people getting divorced and people get mad at me. They say to me, I tell them, divorce is not sin. 
There's nowhere in the Bible that says sin. God hates divorce. Yes, you love that one, but he, he does hate divorce. He hates a lot of things. Doesn't mean they sin. And he himself divorced Israel. That's what the scripture says. He gave them laws long before Jesus about divorce. So don't make it a sin. It's a terrible tragedy. And they get mad and they say, well, you know, they have this whole relationship. If they get divorced, they have sex with someone else. Yes, and I bring them into suspicion. I don't know why they get so legalistic and get back to that nonsense and say, well, you know what Jesus said? He said that the scripture says that if you commit adultery, you'll be stoned. But Jesus said, if you even think, now, who of you haven't thunk? <laughs> why, would he, why would Jesus say that? To sweep that line away that you want to try? I did not have sex with that woman. <laughs> to stop that nonsense, splitting those hairs, well, I didn't actually sin. <laughs> missing it. That's what Jesus said, you all sinners. Let's not try and, try and divide one sin worse than the others because sin is sin is sin. It's a terrible thing. Sin will never be good. Never. It drove our Savior to, to the cross, but he's paid for it all and we have no business judging someone else ever under any conditions and we accept the forgiveness. It's paid for. Don't waste it. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's precious, wonderful salvation. How crazy it is that Galatia, the whole area of different towns in Galatia, they get the gospel from Jesus from Paul, I mean, they get the gospel and they get saved and they were never in religious before. Now they have the Christianity, they go finding the law and becoming Jews and religion. And he writes Galatians, you, in chapter three, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? You started in the grace and end up in the law. And that, and that religion will choke you. And you'll do, th we, we are religious, we have all our chairs facing one direction, we sing, we preach and to receive an offering. We go, we've got a whole religion. It's a whole religion already. God help us in this church if we do something different. <coughs> People say, I don't know about this. I don't like this. Or if the pastor just stands up there for about five minutes with his eyes closed waiting for the Holy Ghost to move. You all get uncomfortable because it's outside of your box of religion. Yeah. Yeah. And when it goes on too long, you've already made plans for lunch. So you're what? it's true. The Holy Ghost wants to move. We need the Holy Ghost. And I've studied and studied why we're not having more Holy Ghost. First of all, the evidences, the three evidences of the Holy Ghost revivals in the last 2,000 years all have the three common denominators. The first is there was sacrificial prayer involved. Somebody was really going out of the way to pray. Not just praying flippantly, but they would get up early in the mornings, they would fast, do something. Sacrificial prayer. And the, the second thing is they, they would recognize the Holy Spirit as a person, as a bona fide part of their lives that they need and give them space, right? And the third thing is you create the atmosphere. I believe the Holy Ghost would have already manifest, but he had to wait for Shaviot because that's when they, when they finally gathered. And they were united and they were focused now, worshiping God. So now the atmosphere was right. We've got to create the atmosphere for him to function. He wants to. When does he get a chance? We've got a whole program going. From the moment the first song goes, we've got songs, and then each one after another gets up with announcements, and then you get up with introduction, and, and the preaching goes on, and then we prophesy, and you all go home. Well, when does the Holy Ghost get a chance to do something different? And God help us if he does something different. I remember in Southern Africa, where I, where we, when I was a young preacher, there was the pastors that I looked up to, the group came together and was debating, I heard, I heard them debating this thing about Rodney Howard Brown, who just got this whole, in the 80s, got this mega revival and this crazy things happening in his church service, and half of them said it's from the devil. 
Now they have said it's from God. They couldn't, they couldn't decide because God's not allowed to do something different. They're praying for revival because it looks so odd, it can't be God. Of course, they all changed and they embraced it eventually, but that's it, the first reaction. So how can God do something different right here in Lexington if we're scared? What's it going to take? Maybe a blinding light like Saul, because now he's up for anything, and this total, he's blind, he can't see, and the man calls him brother. Who are you? Brother, I've come to you may receive sight and the Holy Ghost, and his life is revolutionized. This man, Saul, never got married. You know, a problem with women, I, one of the things that really bothered me about it is his, his, his attitude. I don't permit women uh, to speak, and I don't allow women to have any authority over men. He writes all that in his books, and uh, he, he had a real problem. I mean, he, he meets a woman. He goes from Asia because they, so they hear from the Lord, they must go to Macedonia. Here's a, here's a vision. God couldn't tell the prophet, he had to tell Paul himself that he knows he can't blame anybody else. It's all in the word. It's Acts 16. So they get in the ship boats and they change boats and eventually end up in, in the Macedonian, which is a Greek area. And the first city they come to is a place called Philippi. Now, Philippi was, in the last hundred years of Paul's life, was changed hands three times. There's always kind of wars. The last to take possession of Philippi were the Romans. And they rebuilt it, but there were no synagogues yet. It had been so disruptive. And so it was brand new and fresh. And here's Paul coming into the city. He's Roman, and he stays a few nights there, and Shabbat comes. So he says, is there any Jews at all here, a group of Jews we can meet? Oh, yeah, there's a group. They're outside this. You go out the gate, the main gate, down to the river. That's where they meet on, on, on Sabbath, on Shabbat. Oh, cool. Let's go down there. And he gets in. This is a bunch of women. Paul's favorite. <laughs> and he preaches the gospel to them. They all receive it, and they get baptized. So Lydia says, and I want you to imagine when she's like a little Greek lady, big black bouncy hair with bangles and jewelry and f- f- lots of fabric because she's a fabric. She's a wealthy woman who, who sells fabric. That's what she does. And she's, she's successful. She's got a personality. She's leading this group. She's full of energy and life. She's got such a personality. And so she says, come to my house. No, thank you. Come on. I've got, I got lots of space. You can have the best food. No, thanks. No, thanks. And Paul writes, I mean, Luke writes in the book of Acts, he writes, when we were finally persuaded, because he just didn't want to go. So the th- three days, they're preaching. They're living in their house. And three days, they're preaching. And this crazy woman says, hear these men of God. She's prophesying correctly from the devil. And they cast the devil out of her. And of course, the, you know the, should know the count in Acts 16. They, they whipped them and put them into jail. And they're bleeding backs. And they're singing like a night in jail. And the, the whole walls come, got it, did you? Then the walls came, the walls came tumbling down. They sang that badly. So it happens, you sing badly. And this, uh, the, the centurion or the guard there wanted to kill himself. You know the whole story. And, of course, they just stay there. They don't go. And they, they want these leaders to, to, if they have to leave, they must take us out. And uh, because we are Roman, when they hear they're Roman citizens, they're so repentant. Now, what happens is Paul said, but first, you lead us out. We want to go to that house. And he writes the book to Philippians. He doesn't mention Lydia at all. She's the leader. He's got a real problem with women. And she was an amazing woman in every way. I believe that that women have always been God's secret weapon. It's every time God did something profound, there was a woman in the mix somewhere. I mean, there are some women in the Bible that are just profound. I didn't have time to teach you, but I am overwhelmed with Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the mother 
of John the Baptist. She was beyond remarkable. Her and her husband both came from royal blood. They both came from Aaron, the descendants of Aaron. They were Levites anyway from that tribe, but her husband was a bit of an idiot. But because he's a man, he's okay. And he serves in the temple with his division, and an angel, for goodness sake, an angel, he's, and he argues with the angel. It's like, what's wrong with you? You smoke, don't inhale that stuff. Just light and let it burn. Don't inhale it. It's something that's affecting you. He's arguing with God. And you can see the complete contrast in, the, in, the, in his wife. She's such an amazing woman. You must understand Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, is only 15 maybe. She's betrothed. She's not married. But you have to be 16 to get married. So she's a betrothed. And she meets an angel. And the angel tells her, and look, your cousin is with child. And she's about 40 years old now. So they're not buddies. They don't play TV games together and do makeup and go shopping. They don't have that because they own, they, they, she's 14, he's, she's 15. <coughs> not the same age. So they know each other, but there's nothing, no relationship. But somehow Mary thinks, well, if she's pregnant, it's got to be important. She doesn't tell dad and mom, but she gets the, the servants, the donkeys, and off she goes. And she goes and walks it six, seven days later. She knocks on the door and comes in to the house. Uh, and then when Elizabeth meets her, she says, she, she says, who am I that the mother of my Lord, this is now her husband, how will I know this be? But this one, she was in seclusion for five months being pregnant, and she says, who am I? Who am I that, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What is this, this majest? She's not only prophesying that this woman's hardly pregnant, first prophecy that has carrying, the, carrying the, the Lord, God, the Savior inside of her, not only is she doing that, She's seeing that there's something important that she, and she realizes that I am playing a role, and she's overwhelmed, so unlike her husband, so different. Now, you imagine if she's that spiritual, and they, and they had the whole spiritual thing going on between the two of them, you must imagine how she raised John. She was his personal Bible school. That woman, it wasn't for her training John, because John was devoted. He never had a girlfriend. He didn't go to McDonald's. He had nothing. That boy became 30 years old and had such a miserable life, as far as I'm concerned. He spent two years in the, with the Hessenes, which are, they are the little monks with long white dresses, and they, they don't get married, and they fast and pray all the time. They baptize every day. They're a really extreme group. This, this Dead Sea Scrolls came from them. And so he spent those two years down at the Dead Sea right there all the time, and so he was learning from them. And then he launched the ministry. And then he dies at 33. He doesn't have a life at all. He gives up his life all for this man. And he's not even sure at the end of his life, are you the one or should we expect someone else? He's not sure anymore. Why? Because the message was so different. And we keep trying to in the church trying to make it a harder message when he says, come to me, all of you, that are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The gospel is a wonderful message. He's kind and good. He's paid a price for your salvation. We have no business making another religion and legalistic format again. Do you hear what I'm saying? We must keep the gospel fresh and alive in our hearts and be grateful for it. So Elizabeth was an amazing woman, but this Saul of Tarsus, why I'm telling you all this today is that he gave us all the writings we know, and I thank God for it about this Holy Ghost. No one else writes about the Holy Ghost except Paul. And he writes to the Corinthians who are a bit stupid because they they have this, they're a blue-collar community. Do you know about Corinth? Am I boring you yet? No. You know, Athens was all the esteemed, rich 
for, 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 for philosophers and rich people, and they're powerful, and they influence the whole community. But then Corinth was about two miles away, maybe three, and they were the red light district. They, it's true. They had one orgy after another. Those Romans and those Greeks were very, you don't even want to really tell you the stuff they did and how they got up to everything was okay. So we're here today, we look nothing compared to what they had. They were really bad, much worse than we are today, even though it sounds weird, the world's crazy. So, so now Corinth, now they get a church, they get saved, and they've got immoral things going on. So he's teaching about that, but he has to introduce the Holy Ghost to them because no one else gets that introduction, he introduces to them. And he says, now, I don't want you to be ignorant. The Holy Ghost, this is the Holy Ghost, what happens, you have nine gifts, and he starts to explain to them. And now thank God, for, otherwise we wouldn't know these things. Because it seemed to be expected amongst the brethren, they all understood how it worked. Are you hearing me? Yeah. All right, so the Holy Ghost wants to flow, and of all the gifts we're told to want and desire, and what's most important is prophecy. Prophecy is God speaking to man, through man, his purpose and plan. You guys are too excited, it's over. You must calm it down, guys, calm down. Where's Terea? There you are. You can sing. You really got a magnificent voice. It gives me chills every time. The only thing I ever got was my good looks. <laughs> and that's fading. But Taria, you know, you have much more than singing. Your singing is beautiful, but it's a small part of who you really are. You loaded girl. You're like a loaded gun full of supernatural. You don't need that. Supernatural stuff. And I'm, I am so ready for you to function in the kingdom. We need, you're too busy. You're way too busy. And you, you may think it's uh, amusing and comical, but it's a very serious thing. Because you only have so many days on the earth. Our days are numbered, all of us. And you have so much to give. And there are people around you every day. You're missing the opportunities to touch their lives. Because you are loaded with understanding, with revelation, with prophecy. You're loaded with it all. Prophecy will change a person's life. It is the most amazing thing what a prophetic word will do. In the scriptures, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 23, he says, if someone comes into your church that's unsaved and you're all speaking in tongues, you think you're crazy. But if you're all prophesying, the secrets of his heart will be laid bare and he'll be convinced that he's a sinner and fall down and worship the Lord and say God's really amongst you. Well, it's not the sins of his life being exposed, but the secrets. And it's the secrets nobody knows. It's an evidence that God's real and knows him. And he falls down and not repents, but worships God. Worships God. Prophecy changes people's lives. In Rockford, Illinois, I'll never forget, there was a young man who was a drug dealer. He'd never taken drugs, but he was a drug dealer. And so he tells me. And all his life, he'd done no work other than since he was at school, he sold drugs. And his dad was a Christian and was dying and made him promise to go to church. It was his dying wish. So he fulfilled his dad's promise. He promised his dad and he came and he happened to be in my service. And I happened to pick him out. And I happened to prophesy over him. And he said, it's impossible for me to have known those things about him. Nobody knew some things that I said, apparently. And, it got, and he got saved. He's still today in that church with his family and he's serving God and he doesn't sell drugs anymore, but he's, he's just a whole new person. And uh, yeah, it's a good thing, right? And so what I'm telling you that is how prophecy will change lives. And I'm concerned 
that there are so many opportunities, you're so busy that you're missing all those opportunities, those few words, because you loaded. Not even without prophecy, you just got a, you're just an amazing woman of God. And so I need to, I need to get you, fun- if you and all the others in this room that are gifted, this church is loaded with a lot of good Holy Ghost. You have a genuine apostle. They call people apostles and they usher them in and put them in gold, black Mercedes, Benz and necklaces. That's none of the real thing. Your pastor apostle is very much cares about God's kingdom. He's, I think he eats, sleeps and, drink, and drinks what's going on, the plan of God. And he cares about you. And so he, apostles will stir up other ministries. It will awaken ministries inside of you. And that's what I do. I actually get you from where you know you're called to getting you polished and active, activated and going. Uh, so if you've ever been to an encounter, you want to just try it. Just try once or twice. You might really, you liked it, didn't you? Yeah, you want to go back. You really, really yeah, want to go back. It's, the ones that come frequently, some of them don't come anymore because they've now got their own ministries and their own churches and they just grew so much. And that's what I aim at. I'm, I'm activating. I, I don't, I don't want to leave this earth and not pass on what I've learned. I had to learn a very hard road. No one taught me about the prophetic. I had to find what the Word of God says and how it's supposed to function. And if you're not even prophetic, if you just call it the ministry, I'm there to help you get you activated and grow you. Because sometimes people are just needing a push. Like you just need a little bit of polish and a little bit of <clears throat> shaving off the excesses that you're doing too much stuff. Doesn't mean because you can do it, you must do it. You've got to do God's will. I'd hate to stand before the throne and not have done what God asked me to do. I would hate for that. And you guys are, uh, Stephanie, you're in a different season. Your season's changing. And it's important. You, I, your husband and I can't do this for you. You have to seek God. You have to hear from the Lord for yourself. Until now, you knew what you had to do and you fulfilled it. But you have a whole new task ahead of you, a whole new level and if you don't birth it yourself, it's not going to happen. It's between you and God now. And there's so many of you in this room. It's a very sobering and serious thing. Uh, I'm, I am not an alarmist. An alarmist is a person in the prophetic that tells you the doom and gloom's coming. The stock market's going to crash. You're going to have a red moon or some I bloom. I don't know. There's always something they've got something panicky about. And I've never, ever been this way. But I feel this year there are some major, major things going to happen. And the church needs to... Brighten up and become, because you're safe. You're totally safe in all those, the, the economies, there's a whole facade going on, a lot of dis, deception. The economy's crumbling at the moment. Now, I, I don't know this from the national, I'm not an economist. I'm just telling you what I know by the spirit. There's so many things that are going on and the world's going to have more wars and difficulties going on all the time. There's a lot of stuff going to happen. And it's just like I knew that when COVID came, I knew something tragic was going to happen. I didn't know what it was. And he never told me because I had to tell me I was going to act crazy, apparently. But this year is a year of a most, lot of, and it's a, the next very intense time. The church needs to be the church. We need to be very serious about the work. And every one of you in this room tonight have something from God to do. Not whatever your age is, or whatever your health condition is, you're still breathing. We need you to function. Don't get to your own little world and be comfortable because many of you are very anointed and blessed. We need you to pray. We need you to function. Whatever God has for you, find out what it is and do it. When Peter was young and he was also a character, boy, Peter wasn't the smartest man. He just wasn't. I mean, Jesus, he's walking on the water and he says, don't be afraid, it's me. And the first words out of Peter's mouth, if that's you, he just said. It's like, are you brain damaged? 
I mean, he was a strange fellow. Peter was a strange, strange fellow. Nobody else walked in the water but him. He had to, he had, he had to do something crazy. He's always, I mean, think about it. What would you do if you were on a mountain with Jesus and Moses and Elijah came? You, you know what? I know what I would do. I'd say, hey, Moses, can you just come? come. <laughs> I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. I'll... Smart Peter says, shall I build a tent? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Moses and Elijah don't need a tent. <laughs> and you think they'd get a grip. And I'd be asking, what, what they do? What's going on? I'd find out. Duh. They're coming down the mountain. Jesus says, no, don't tell anybody. Just keep it to yourself. <laughs> no problem. I've already forgotten what happened anyway. You know, just, <laughs> he's just not the smartest fellow, Peter. And so they're up in the northern parts at a place called Caesarea Philippi, gates of hell. And Jesus looks around and he says, who do men say that I am? And the, so he says, well, one says you're Elijah, another says you're the prophet, another says you're the, they say different things. And, well, okay, well, who do you guys think I am? Well, you're the son of God, Peter says. And Jesus is taken back and says, blessed, you blessed, because flesh could not, for a Jew to realize, you must understand that for a Jew in our tradition, the very first prayer we have is called, it's called Shama Israel. Every, for me, this, you can be this old, the first, in fact, to give you a nice illustration, a rabbi went after the Second World War looking for the, for the orphanage, orphan Jewish children, and in one huge orphanage in Poland, he was allowed to speak for two minutes at an assembly of all those children because I didn't have, they didn't have time, all the workers to help with the 4,000 children that were there. So he, the rabbi got up and he shouted, Shama Israel. And when he said that, the little kids jumped up and shouted, Papa, 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 because it's the first thing you learn. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God, Shama. Hear, which means to hear, because he's one God. Now he suddenly got a son from Nazareth, duh. And so Peter says, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, the only God could reveal it. You've received revelation. And he's so excited that he starts to share first, for the first time, the whole purpose. The son of man must be delivered in the hands of his enemies and suffer greatly. He tells the whole story. And Peter pulls him aside. Lord, this will not happen to you. You'd think now, he's just confessed he's got a prophetic revelation. He'd be flowing again. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I see what you're up to using this weak vessel. And he says to Peter, you don't have the concerns of God at heart. We get so distracted building his church, we don't really have his concerns. We don't focus on what he wants. May God give us the grace to care what he cares about, what's important to him, to hear what God, you know so much about God, you know God so deeply, you carry it, don't waste it. Don't keep building your own world, hear from the Lord what he wants you to do, and you'll be shocked when you go to the grocery store how things will happen surround you all the time, all the time, because you load it, you're full of it. You are full of it, girl. You like that? Yeah. Your time's coming too. You've been raising kids. You've got no more excuses now. You're stubborn. I don't know if you know you're stubborn. Did you even tell you that? You can get very, very hard-headed about some stuff. And you used to throw fits about the most ridiculous things. And that's very human. But you're a powerful lady. That stubbornness is also strength. Because that same stubbornness is the very thing that God likes about you. Because if you make up your mind, nothing's stopping you. Because look how you fight for your kids. You'll fight when you believe in something. Get out of my way. I'm gonna, this is going to happen. And that's who you are. God wants to use that for his glory. So everything is coming to a change. There's a season of change in this church. And people that have seemingly been busy with other things are going to merge suddenly. 
And we've come into the season in God's kingdom where women are powerful instruments in God's hands. We don't hold them back. We pray. I don't know how, uh, how a logical, a goy, a Gentile can be when you pray, our Father in heaven, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> There's no giving of male and female. There's no such thing in heaven. So you're praying for that kingdom, but you don't want women to be in leadership. What the heck is wrong with you? Because we need every bit of ministry and gift we can get. Are you hearing me? Whether they're men or women, whether they're old or young, fat or thin, black or white, we don't care. As long as you're full of the Holy Ghost. Yes. 